St. James Lutheran Church. I only have uh, one announcement this morning before we start, and that is if you want to join us for adult Bible study at 11.30 a.m., we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, talk, like, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And this morning, and we were getting to 1 Corinthians 14, and so we're going to talk about uh, the gift of speaking in tongues. And so if you're interested in that topic and you want to join us, and you haven't already received an uh, invitation uh, for Zoom, uh, a Zoom invitation for that Bible study, let me know between now and uh, 11.30, and I'll send you one. And uh, it's a pretty good, I, uh, it's a weird format to meet on Zoom, but it's working so far. That's the only announcement I really have. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us confess our sins to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord. For we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease You. Forgive our sins and help us to live in Your light and walk in Your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. For the sake of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So then like last week, there's a gap in, in verses here. Jesus goes on talking. And then later on, the disciples get a chance to ask him, what did you mean by that story about the field and the wheat and the tares? So verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated.
Epistle reading is from Romans chapter 8, and in your bulletin, I think it goes through verse 8. I just want to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll get to the rest of that uh, next week. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so uh, just to, like we've been doing, uh, if you don't mind, let me just give me 30 seconds to kind of reset where we're at. In Romans 5-8, through Paul is telling the story of the whole world, the whole history of the world, starting in Romans 5 with Adam and the fall and the sin and the resulting death and destruction that followed, and ending in Romans 8 at the end of the chapter we're in now at new creation, at God making all things new, repairing our bodies, repairing our relationships, repairing the environment. And he tells, in in the course of Romans 5 through 8, he tells that whole story. And so so we saw in Romans 6, there's the Exodus. Uh, And um, last week in Romans 7, the past few weeks, uh, it's the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And what's surprising about that, you'll remember, is that from Romans chapter 6, your salvation, to Romans chapter 8, new creation, it looks like the law in Romans chapter 7 should be, like it fits right in there, like, Right, So like there's the Exodus. In between Exodus and promised land, you get the law from God to tell you how to get there. In between your baptism and, and your resurrection, God's law will help you get to that goal. Surprisingly though, Paul says in Romans 7, the law looks like it should do that, but it can't do it. It's just powerless to do it. Paul's solution, in Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to tell us what can get us from your salvation to new creation. And the answer is not the law, but the answer is the Holy Spirit. The first part of Romans chapter 8 is going to be about life in the Spirit. Now, before we get started here, uh, actually, we're getting started now, I guess. Ask the question, what does Paul mean by there is therefore now no condemnation? That's the first line. And I have to ask that because I don't know if you guys, those of you who uh, heard the sermon last week or read the text from last week, it it doesn't end with any sort of positivity. It ends with, Paul says, this is the very last line of, verse, uh, of chapter 7. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And do you remember he's describing like this is the state of all humans in Adam. Outside of Christ, this is the way all humans are. Serving the law of God with our minds. I, I know there's outliers. There's always an Adolf Hitler out there. But, but generally speaking, all humans, like they want, we want to do good, right? We want to we be honest. We want to have friends. Uh, we want to make money, we want to be good citizens, uh, but we find, you know, in our mind, we agree with God that telling the truth is good, that honoring our family is good, that not stealing is good, that not committing adultery is good. Just generally in speaking, we all agree with that, but we find ourselves as humans chronically incapable of being truth-tellers and of being faithful completely in our relationships and always putting our kids and our friends and our spouses and our Parents first. We just, we're not capable of doing that. So it's surprising that Paul says, he says, that's your state. We're just a hot mess, you know. Like we, we all kind of want to do good, but none of us can do it. Therefore, there is no condemnation. That's a weird thing to say. Now, the reason why it's weird for us is because usually we're used to, we're used to logical arguments that go premise one, premise two, conclusion. So we're used to like, you have a bad toothache, premise one. Go to the dentist. You should go to the dentist, premise two. Conclusion, your bad toothache will go away. That's what we're used to. And what Paul does essentially here is, I'll show it to you in a second, is he says, 
you have a bad toothache. Your tooth, therefore, is going to feel good. And then he comes back to premise two, because you're going to go to the dentist. So he does the conclusion right in the middle. So let me, sit, let me show you how he does this. And you don't have this in your bulletin. I'll just give it to you again. He starts off premise one, chapter seven, verse 25. We're a hot mess. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Conclusion, there is therefore now no condemnation. Then premise two, because, verse two, the law of the Spirit which gives life, it's the spirit of life, but it's the law of the spirit which gives life is what he means, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin which brings death. So there's no condemnation because the Holy Spirit has liberated us from chapter 7, verse 25. This law mess where we have this one law in our hearts and in our minds, but with our behavior and our thoughts and our words, we do something completely different. It's the law of the spirit which gives life that frees us from that. Now, okay, so I have a question here. What does he mean, law of the Spirit? Uh, Keep that in your head. We're going to come back to that. That's an important question, but I'm not going to deal with that now. Because before Paul gets to the Holy Spirit stuff, and trust me, like the next section of the first half of chapter 8 is about life in the Spirit. But before he gets there, he has to nail the bad guy. All right? So if you've been tracking along since Romans 5 with us, he's lined up. So so like, like Hercule Poirot at the end of an Agatha Christie mystery, He's got all the bad guys in the room. And he's going to go through and like point out all these potential suspects. And then he's going to finger the bad guy. And that's what he's going to do in the first uh, two or three verses here, the first four verses here. So we have to deal with the condemnation first. And then we can get to life in the Spirit. And we'll basically start that next week. Okay, so, so God, he's like the, like the like a, like a Agatha Christie detective. He has all the sp- suspects in the room. And he starts going through them. He's been, he started in chapter 5. Who's at fault here? Who, is it the law? It looks, it's possible that you could say the law of God is actually what's causing this problem. We're, we're, it's, it's oppressing us and we're living under it. And, you know, Paul is going to say in chapter 7, the law has opportunity. What are those three things that the detectives, you have, uh, Hercule Poirot always says, you have opportunity, you have motive, and then you have, oh, the means. So Whatever. That's not important. I was just thinking. I, I should not have said that. Uh, Anyway, so the law probably has opportunity to to be the bad guy, to kill us, but at the end of the day, the law of God is just and holy and, um, what else did he say, wise or beautiful or something like that in chapter 7. The law of God actually comes from God. So the law looks like it would be a good suspect, but it doesn't turn out to be the law. Do do you you know what's lurking behind that notion that it's God's law that's the bad guy? Is the suspicion that like... Um, I was going to say uh, an, a reference to an Agatha Christie play, and, but my kids haven't seen it yet. So, and they're, oh, they're not here yet, are they? So like if you've ever seen uh, The Mousetrap, it tur- am I going to ruin it for everybody? It turns out that the detective is actually the murderer. The suspicion that we all have, behind, lurking behind the notion that it's God's law that's the bad guy, is that maybe it's God who's the bad guy. Like, if you're so all-powerful and good, why don't you fix everything? Why are you condemning sin when you have the power to snap your fingers and get rid of it? Now, that's a huge question. I should not have even brought up if I don't have any intentions of talking about it this morning. But I would just say this. Romans chapter 9, we're not going to look at this. We're going to end our study in Romans 8. He actually asked this question. Like, if God, Paul says, if God made everything, like, then how does anybody have the right to say to him, like, how does anybody 
Like, how does he find fault with anybody when he's made all of us? And then Paul's going to answer that question. But he's going to insist that, like the law, God is just and holy and righteous. And so he's not the bad guy. What about, it's, it's us then, right? Like it's Adam and it's the humans. We're the ones who need to be condemned. Actually, Paul's going to say, it kind of looks like that, right? I mean, it's the humans who are the racist. It's the humans who are the murderers. It's the humans who lie and cheat on their spouses and etc. But actually, Romans 7, he says this. Like, because of this, like, because every human like, has this notion of like, we want to be good even though we can't do it. Paul says two times, he says in Romans chapter 7, I find then that it's not me who's sinful, but it's, the, it's not me who does these things, but it's the sin that dwells in me. So we're not the bad guys either. And there I just kind of, uh, Poirot just kind of tipped his hand there. It turns out that the bad guy is actually sin. So look, look who gets condemned in chapter 8. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's kind of the negative way of saying you've been justified. You've been declared not guilty. You've not been, this is court, condemnation is courtroom language. You've not been declared guilty. But look in verse 3. What has been declared guilty? God has done what the law, this is like Paul, you know, he starts a sentence and then he just can't finish it like a normal person. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, etc., etc., by sending his own son, etc., etc. He condemned sin in the flesh. Who gets condemned? Paul says that God ultimately is going to condemn sin. God is going to say to sin, you are the bad guy, I'm judging you guilty, and I'm getting rid of you. Can I make a, a little side conversation here real quick? This is just as good a place as any to do this. It's maybe a little bit not apropos in the, in the text, but why do we need to talk about condemnation at all? Look, I, I'm bring, I, I sort of raised this question a second earlier, and I'll kind of bring up a related question. Why should we talk about, like, why does God need to condemn anything anyway? Why can't he just be a nice guy? It seems kind of petty, all this condemnation stuff. Why would God punish people for just, like, going around doing their normal business? Why would God be so determined to be a condemner, to be a judger? I don't like that God. I like the nice, I, like the, I don't like the Jesus from our gospel reading today, who's binding up you know, weeds and bundles and then burning them. I like a nice God. Let me, let me just say this. This is a possible response to this. <clears throat> this is um, condemnation, judgment, wrath. They aren't, anti they aren't anti-love. It's not like the opposite of love is judging and being angry. Uh, let me give you an example. Like if, I, if you walked in here this morning and like I got in here a little bit before you, and I sat down in the seat that you were headed for, which, you know, right now the chances of that happening are pretty small. But just, just play, with, play along with me. You, would you be angry with me? Would you, you know, would you damn me under your breath? Probably not. The reason why is that you probably don't love that seat that much. You know, okay, fine, sit there, I'll just sit somewhere else. What if I, what if I stole something from you, maybe something inconsequential, what if I came to your office and, like, stole a pen tray off of your desk? You would be irritated with me, maybe a little bit ticked off. Would you, be, would you describe yourself as, like, wrathful and full of condemnation? I don't, know who, I, I don't know if you would or not. Probably not, though. It's just a, you know, a, a, a pen tray. What if somebody, though, just play along with me. What if somebody burned your house down? What if somebody did something incredibly harmful to your child? Would you be 
condemning at that point? Would you be full of wrath and anger? Well, of course you would. And you would be right to be condemning. And if, I, if you came to me and you said, look, somebody, I just found out that somebody did something incredibly horrible to one of my kids. And I said to you, look, you just need to relax. All this condemning stuff, you just need to let it go. Why can't you just let it go? You would be furious with me too because you would say that does not actually fit. I don't, this is not like a pen tray off my desk. This is not like taking somebody's seat. This is one of my kids who I love dearly. And the amount of condemnation and anger that you would have towards the crime would be directly commensurate with the amount of love that you had for that kid. And so that when we say about God, why can't he just get over it? Why can't he just say, uh, you're all forgiven, it's not a big deal? What we're doing is we're asking him not to love the things he loves. What we're doing is, is to ask him to look at the damage that we've done to ourselves, who he loves dearly, and to his creation, which he loves dearly, and to say, it's not that big of a deal, just let it go. This is, there's, there's a related note, do you guys see what I'm saying? There's a related notion to this, which is like believing in a judge, judgmental God, believing in a God who like would punish sin, that leads his followers to be judgmental and violent too. You, you'll hear this when you talk to non-believers a lot. Like this, most of the world's wars are caused by religion. Not true, although many wars have been caused by religion. I'm not gonna try and justify that. And the reason why is because if you believe in a God who like, would punish, would condemn sin like this, that would lead his followers to do that as well. So let me, let me recommend to you a book. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this very topic in a book that he wrote called uh, The Reason for God, which I would highly recommend you to read. But he says this, that this is actually, uh, this is actually not true. That believing in a God who judges sin finally and completely should, be, should lead us to nonviolence. And he gives this quote. I'm going to give you this quote too. It's a quote by a, a, a professor at Yale named Miroslav Wolf, who's from Croatia and went through the Balkan Wars. And he knows what genocide and violence is like. And here's what he says about this notion. He, so his theory is this, is that only by believing in a God who will completely and absolutely annihilate evil on the last day can somebody be truly and genuinely spiritually and in, in their actions, nonviolent. Here's what he says. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, if God would not say, I'm going to end all racism and destroy all people who continue in their racism forever, people who are committed to lives of thievery and refuse to repent, I have to end them. On, if, if, if that God did not exist, if there wasn't a God who said, I am going to destroy Adolf Hitler eternally on the last day, that God, Miroslav Wolf says, would not be worthy of worship. Here's what he means. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence, us being committed to, to nonviolence, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires, requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. Well, of course it is. We all kind of want that gentle Jesus meek and mild. We want God to kind of pat everybody on their head as they enter into the pearly gates and say, well, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Th that's going to be unpopular. But it takes the quiet, here's what he says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results in the belief in God's refusal to judge. Only we in the West, quietly in our homes, sipping our tea, watching Netflix, comfortable, only we can come up with the thesis that God has to be nice to everybody. In a sun-scorched land, here's what Miroslav Bull says, 
Again, this is a Yale professor. This is not just some yay who wants to see God blow up the whole world, right? This is actually philosophically legitimate, what he's arguing for here. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent. And remember, he's seen it, and he's lived it. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that dream of the nice, gentle God who pats everybody on the head will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. It's not possible. Like, if you've, if you've lived in the middle of, like, systemic and rampant racism, the notion that we should just be nice and, like, everybody's okay, I'm okay, you're okay, it's untenable. It doesn't work. Unless you've managed to sequester yourself in the middle class to upper middle class, white contemporary West, that thesis doesn't work. I'm not saying you need to like it, okay? I'm not saying that you need to be like, yes, God's going to condemn sin. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is understand it. And, and, and part of us should appreciate a God who judges faithfully, who will call unrighteousness, unrighteousness, and righteousness, righteousness, and also appreciate the fact that it liberates us to not retaliate. It liberates, I don't need to retaliate because I believe in a God, this is Paul's going to argue later on in Romans, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he's going to say in Romans 13. Let God be God and you be a lover of your neighbor and a lover of him. This is the first thing. This is the first point I want to make. God condemns sin. God condemns sin. That's not super pleasant, but it's a reality. And, and we can't, until, until we get that, we can't get to the whole life of the Spirit stuff. Until we get that God is a God who condemns sin. Remember, the bad guy is not the human. The bad guy is the sin. The bad guy is the sin. Okay. I'm going to give you three more things. Not, not as long as that one, okay? So uh, we'll be good. Second thing is this. So first thing, God condemns sin. Second thing, God condemns sin because he loves us. Look at verse 3 again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God sends his own son. Christianity 101 right here. God sends his own son to condemn sin. There's this other kind of caricature of God. You know, I can't believe in a God who would just get, he's so angry and wrathful and petty that when people disobey his rules, he's like, I gotta kill somebody to get even. And even if it's his own son, that's even worse. Like, I'm gonna kill my own son to get even. So remember, the, the target is not the humans. The target is the sin. We should, two things. First of all, bottom line here, this is not some sort of act of like crazed, angry vengeance. This is his own son. He's sacrificing a huge chunk of himself to get this done. Second of all, it's not vengeance against a human. It's vengeance against sin. Think of it this way. We have a cancer that can't be cured unless we have this radical surgery. A surgery so radical that we will not be able to survive it. God comes up with a plan to do this surgery, to get rid of this cancer, but since we won't be able to survive the surgery, he himself figures out a way to take the cancer, our cancer, into himself, union with Christ, do the surgery on himself, because he knows that as painful and as horrible and as radical as that surgery is, he has the ability to survive the surgery. He gets rid of the sin that way. He does this because he loves us. This isn't some sort of like crazy man who's like, I just got to punch somebody. I'm so mad at these humans, i got to punch somebody. This is calculated, and it comes out of a heart, a passionate heart of love for us. It's a plan that figures out a way to get rid of our sin without killing us. Okay, that's the second thing. So first, God condemns sin. Second, God condemns sin because he loves us. Third, God condemns sin because nothing else can. Look at verse 3 again. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not condemn sin. 
The law can't condemn sin because it's weakened by the flesh. I'm going to kind of repeat some stuff I said last week, but you'll be okay with that, I hope. What does he mean, weakened by the flesh? Here's the, here's the analogy I've got for you. So every once in a while, I'll smoke a pork shoulder, and I feel bad saying this in front of Kevin Stokowski, because he's like, Kevin's in, like, he smokes meat like in his sleep, right? And he's like, oh, here's five things you're doing wrong. So I'm kind of embarrassed, so Kevin, just ignore this. And so the, for, for, for you to pull pork, it's got to get up to like 190, 195 degrees internally. But you can't, like, the temperature in the smoker can't get much over 250. So, I mean, you can see it's going to take forever to do it, right? And so what you want to do is you want to quit, like, when the pork gets up to, like, 165, where it's, it's edible and it's not going to kill you, right? But then it won't pull, right? You just, you, you have to cut it. It won't pull off the, it won't pull. But if you can get up to 195, it'll pull. And so how you know it's done is, you know, you take a fork and you stick it in the pork, and the pork will just fall off of it. The, the, the fork will not be able to hold the pork up. It just sort of caves, caves off around the pork. That's when it's really good. That's what Paul's talking about here. The law is like a fork. It can't hold the meat up. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the fork. It's that the meat is just too weak to hold it. You know, the law is not, it's not that there's anything wrong with the law. It's just not, it's too, our flesh is too weak through it. And so, because the law couldn't do it, and again, I talked about that a lot the past few weeks. I don't want to go back there now. God does it. God does it. God condemns sin because the law can't. God solves the sin problem because our rules can't. And that's not just, it's not just Torah. It's all the rules that we come up for living. Whether it's, you know, Benjamin Franklin's rules for living or Satchel Paige's rules for living or the dictums that you live by. You know, I don't know what that is. You know, keep your lawn mowed and, uh, you know, show up to work on time and be the last one to leave and uh, be kind to people. Whatever the, whatever the rules that you have living, they, they aren't actually able to fix what you're actually wanting to get done with your life. They actually won't give you meaning. They won't give you a purpose. They won't give you a sense that just because I mow my lawn, it doesn't help me realize, does that have eternal value? It does. Mowing your lawn does have eternal value. It creates beauty. It creates order. It matches up with the heart of God. But, but outside of the gospel, it doesn't. It's just a rule that you keep that's sort of repetitive and meaningless. Because law can't do it, God does it. God condemns sin. God condemns sin because he loves us. God condemns sin because nothing else can and then fourth, and this is the last one, and now I'm going to sort of transition us to next week where we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now that God has condemned sin and got rid of the sin problem, life in the Spirit can happen. It's going to transition here. God condemns sin so that we can live. Look at verse 4. God condemns sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Okay, this is a little bit, this, this is a little bit extra here. And I just try to hang on because it's, it's got to do some theology for a few minutes. I promise you, next week will be more practical. Like, how can we live our lives? But we have to do this theology first. How does this work? How does the life in the Spirit fulfill the requirements of the law of God? To answer that question, can we go back to verse 2? Where at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to hold in your mind the question of what does Paul mean by the law of the Spirit? So in verse 2, the law of the Spirit, which brings life, is juxtaposed against the law of sin, which brings death. Every commentator I read agrees that the law of sin, which brings death, is the Torah, the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Hardly anybody said that about the law of the Spirit. They all said, okay, so the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments bring death through sin. The law of the Spirit, that must be some sort of like Holy Spirit principle that counteracts it. And Paul's just trying to create a parallel thing. Law of the Spirit versus law of uh, sin. 
I want to argue just real briefly, and maybe not even thoroughly, but just, you know, take it or leave it and kind of chew on it. That the law of the Spirit is also the Torah. How does this work? What does he mean by the law of, the law of sin? Do you remember back in chapter 7 what he meant? He, may, he means that sin takes the law and makes us sin with it. Sin takes the law of God and creates covetousness. Sin takes the Ten Commandments and says, hey, you know what, those commandments are probably really good. They seem to make a lot of sense. But honestly, don't you really hate having these rules? Like, I'm sure God's a nice guy and he, he comes up with great rules, I suppose, but at the end of the day, they are rules. They're kind of in charge of you. Doesn't that suck? And he takes it, the sin takes the law and it turns it into death. What the Spirit does is it takes the law, this is what he means by the law of the Spirit. The Spirit takes the Torah and turns it into life by condemning sin first, joining us up to Jesus, and then in verse 4, by fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us, who don't walk according to the flesh but walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit actually starts to work out the righteous requirement of God's law. The Spirit takes the law, and so, so uh, I was reading the story this week, I've been sort of... Uh, sickly and prayerfully interested in human trafficking, learning about human trafficking lately. And there's like these, you know, there's like five main categories that human trafficking happens. It's a serious problem, like here in Glen Carbon, almost certainly, all over the world. And a lot of them are what you would think, like sexual exploitation, forced prostitution, forced, forced labor. One of the big ones, and this is maybe not as big as the other ones, but is... Um, uh, harvesting organs. It's a big deal in China. The past, uh, it's come to light in the past uh, 10 years that the Chinese government, which has a law that says executed, executed prisoners, prisoners who were executed for crimes, we are allowed to harvest their organs to sell. Would you, you can see how the price of a heart on the market, how there would be a temptation to execute prisoners. Well, this is what's happening. People in the West, rich people, are, can like if you need a heart, you can schedule months in advance your trip to China to get a heart. Well, you know, if you know anything about like organ transplant, you know that that's actually not possible. You can't schedule an organ transplant. Somebody has to die who's agreed to give you the organ, and it has to happen like almost immediately. Well, it's come to light that mainly, mainly uh, people who are being persecuted for their religion, members of the Falun Gong and members, uh, and, uh, members of a Muslim sect in China, are being imprisoned for not for being religious. It's it's a, 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 a violation of their freedom of religion, and then being executed so that their uh, organs can be harvested. And I was thinking about as I was thinking about that, sadly, and praying about it. Actually, I was thinking about my illustration last week about the scalpel. A scalpel can be a really really bad thing in the hands of a bad surgeon, of an evil person, or even somebody who's not a surgeon. This, that same scalpel can also be like an incredibly welcome thing in the hands of a good-hearted surgeon. Right? The same scalpel that would like harvest an organ from somebody who's unwilling is the same scalpel that can be used to take cancer out of somebody. The law is like a scalpel. Sin uses it to kill us. The Holy Spirit can use it, though, to cut us open, get the cancer out, can use the same tools to sew us up and to heal us, but only in Christ, only in Christ. Okay, so this is, we have to start thinking of, what I'm saying is we have to start thinking of salvation in a Trinitarian way. You and I, as, as, as mainly Lutherans, we like to think of salvation as primarily justification. Like we go in the courtroom, God says not guilty, and we're like, thanks God. And he's like, okay, 
Oh, you're cool. I'll see you in heaven. All right, see you later. There's actually much more than that. God doesn't just want to send you out with this free pass. He also sends you out with the Holy Spirit. He sends you out working his law inside of you. That's what the Holy Spirit is for, right? So start thinking of salvation in this Trinitarian fashion. God condemns sin, not just so that we can get out of hell for free. God condemns sin so that we can begin to live, so that we can begin mowing our lives in a kingdom-centered way. So that we, we can begin making money in a kingdom-centered way. So that we can begin hanging out with our friends, drink, eating nice meals with our family in a kingdom-centered way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, serving each other and loving each other. More on that next week. We'll get to that next week, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, condemning sin. Thank you for uh, being a God. This is a weird thing to pray, and part of me recoils against it even. But thank you, thank you for being a God who judges sin. Thank you for being a God who judged my sin and the sin of my friends here and the sin of the whole world, First uh, John tells us, in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming up with that plan to get rid of our sin in him, in his death and in his resurrection. And help us to live in light of that uh, condemnation of our sin and to live in the freedom of your love and the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and let's pray. Second here. Okay, let's pray. Uh, God, we come before you. Uh, we come before you again, uh, just wanting to uh, appraise you and adore you for uh, not just as as I just prayed, not just for condemning our sin, but for giving us the Holy Spirit for empowering us to live the lives that you want us to live. Not perfectly, of course. We ask that you would continue to forgive us for all the many times that we don't love each other like we should, that we love ourselves more than we love our kids and our family and our friends, that, that we don't love your creation and the community that you've placed us in like we should. Forgive us for that. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, continue shaping us to be people who do live according to your law in this world. Lord, in your mercy. Uh, Father, I'd like to pray this morning. Uh, I, I just uh, found out this week that today, I, I never heard of this before, but that today is a, a Bible translation day, a day when we uh, think about and pray for and honor those who translate your word. Uh, we confess, along with your word, that uh, it, it is your word that brings faith, as Romans 10 says. That it's your word that has the words of life. That it's your word that sanctifies us, as Jesus says in John 17. And so we want to honor those who devote their lives, who have devoted their lives and are devoting their lives to making your word intelligible and readable by everybody. Whether it's uh, people who are making new translations to replace outdated ones or people who are making translations for uh, those who've never had them. Uh, we thank you for that. I want to especially thank you this morning for our friend Sue with Wycliffe who has devoted her life uh, to this ministry of translating your word into different languages. Uh, bless her, keep her safe, uh, give her courage and boldness in her work and uh, good health, uh, physical and mental and spiritual health. Lord, in your mercy. Father, continue uh, like keep, keeping us uh, safe and healthy. Uh, continue... Uh, working healing for all, for all those who are sick, uh, for those who have had uh, in the past week uh, procedures, uh, surgeries in the past week, surgeries coming up this next week, 
uh, for those who we know and those who we don't know who are struggling with the coronavirus. Uh, Father, heal all of these people. And uh, again, as we pray every week, get rid of this virus. And not just this virus, but get rid of all sicknesses. Get rid of all cancers and get rid of all diseases and get rid of all mental illnesses and get rid of all spiritual illnesses. Get rid of greed. Get rid of selfishness. Get rid of pride. Get rid of racism. Uh, get rid of all the things that contribute to all the problems, uh, all the things that you have condemned in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that and that you would do it quickly. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things because your Son, Jesus, has bound us up inside of himself so that we can come into your throne room, so that when you see him, you see us. And when you think about us, you have the same amount of passion the same amount of love, the exact same amount of concern and care as you have for your son, Jesus. And so we pray this prayer in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when He was betrayed took bread. and When He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. 